0: At hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. Of course, I'm your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Today, everyone, I am pleased to bring you an interview that I did. Actually, not expect to have, actually. Um, Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Richard Driver about his upcoming book, but I still had an itch to talk about a book that I could actually get my hands on, and get my hands on a book I did. Now, look, folks, I know I'm not a real journalist, and I know I'm not much of an influencer, and this podcast has far less reach than I would ever like to admit, especially for the amount of time I've been on the air and the amount of time i put into it, but anyway, I must be doing something right, as I have now received my first ever advanced press copy of a book. Oh, how elated I was. The book in question is now indeed available at all good retailers, both online and the high street, and I do give it my full recommendation. It's a Beatle book, it's a partial biography, and a story almost too crazy to actually be plausible. It's called My Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England to Meet the Beatles and Got Rock and Roll Banned in Cleveland. A true story from 1964. But don't let that mouthful of a title fool you. It's an incredibly fun and breezy, yet totally beguiling tale of early Beatledom, fandom, the state of the world in 1964, of travel, of passion, of youth, and... You probably guessed all of that from the title, but fear not, me and its author are going to be filling in all of the necessary gaps. I've had the pleasure of speaking with author Jan Mitchell, and it really was a pleasure speaking with her. So much so that around a third of the audio you're about to hear today was actually taken from the chat we had after the main interview, and I've chopped it and edited it in, because there was just too much gold to pass up. Yeah, folks... Nothing too complicated. As always, we're going to return to an older format of the show here, nothing you haven't heard before. I swear I'm working on the the off-the-ground episode where I can, but this is more than something to just wet your beak. I really do think you're going to enjoy this one. But before we get into any of that, we do have the matter of the housekeeping. So what do we have in terms of news for today? Well, we've got more news about the Paul McCartney lyrics book, 1956 to the present. And not only has Paul started doing a few interviews here and there, one with Bob Mortimer of all people, which I was very excited to see, the main QA event is going to be taking place on November 5th in London at the South Bank Centre's Royal Festival Hall. You can actually get tickets for this event. They're going to go on sale Friday, September 17th, which is now a week ago at the time of recording, so I hope you've already got your tickets already. The event is going to be streamed via Dice.fm and tickets for the stream can also be purchased around the same time. It's going to be on demand for seven days after the event and obviously Paul is going to be discussing the book, the lyrics, where the songs came from, the creative process and it's all going to be done with Pulitzer Prize winning author and poet Paul Muldoon who edited the book. Looking forward to that. In more tabloidy news... Paul and Ringo enjoyed a mini-reunion in the company of their respective wives, Nancy Cheval and Barbara Back, as well as George Harrison's wife, Olivia Harrison. They were all recently pictured outside the Scalini, a very fancy Italian restaurant in Chelsea. Nice to see that everyone's still on good terms. In more pressing news in regards to the Let It Be box set that is coming out later next month, we've had... The pleasure of hearing a total of seven tracks from that box set to tease and tantalise us fans. We've had Get Back, Take Eight, One of the 909, Take Three, which was a delightfully rough and raucous take that I never heard before. You've got the i me mine 1970 Glyn's John mix, which is basically just the normal mix, but it doesn't repeat the second verse. Across the Universe, the 2021 mix, fully done and modern. Yeah, you there is a definite difference here, folks. Like the backing vocals, the twanginess of the electric guitar. There's so much texture going on in what was quite a bland track from that. I do prefer this mix, i got to say. We've heard the 2021 mix of Let It Be, kind of samey, I guess. Then we've had Don't Let Me Down, the first rooftop performance, a.k.a. the one where John flubs the words, and it's the one from my dad's iPod that I can never find online until very recently. But what interests me is... I thought we weren't getting any of the rooftop gig in this box set, so if anything has changed, please do get in contact with me and let me know. And finally, we've had the For You Blue 1969 Glyn Johns mix, which is also a personal favourite of mine. Of course, I've already pre-ordered my box set for this album. I cannot wait for it to come out. I cannot wait to do an unboxing video and to review it. All that jazz. Keep watching this space. In totally irrelevant news for most of you baby boomers out there, the modern hip-hop artist Drake has credited John Lennon and Paul McCartney as co-writers on his long-awaited new album, Certified Lover Boy. The former Beatles are listed on the opening track, Champagne Poetry, for an interpolation of their song, Michelle. This is Drake's sixth album and features the likes of Jay-Z, Nicki Minaj, Travis Scott, 21 Savage, Lil Baby and Yeeba, or Yeeba. I don't know who half of those people are, but hey, I know most of you listening don't know who any of them are. Just as a little aside, this was the album that Drake put out to go up against uh, Kanye West's new album Donda. And whilst Donda is hardly Kanye's best album by any means, it's certainly better than Certified Loverboy. And finally, folks, a man called Paul McCartney has been arrested in Worcester Court for assault. That's Worcester here in the UK, not Worcester, Massachusetts, for all you departed fans. Paul McCartney, aged 58, of Randwick Drive, Worcester, has appeared at the Worcester Magistrates Court on Thursday, facing a charge of assault and beating. The offence is alleged to have taken place on June 16th this year in Worcester, and he was remanded on unconditional bail until October 1st this year. (laughs) I'm sorry for including that one. I just thought it was too funny. Anyway, now that we've got the news out of the way, let's get through the plugs. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmcarnipod at gmail.com. However tangentially related to Paul McCartney it is, I want to hear it. I always love reading out your correspondence here on the show, folks. Whether it's your own review, whether you're taking umbrage with something I've said, maybe you want to fill in a gap, some trivia, some factoids, or maybe you are like Steve Betchler from West Coldwell, New Jersey, who just wants to write in and... Lend some support. He says, Sam, over the past month, I've become a loyal listener of your podcast and your YouTube show, Mac It In The Attic. Your shows are both entertaining and informative. You're a very talented host. Keep up the work and thanks for the great shows. Sincerely, Steve Betchler. Thank you so much, Steve. Emails like that are what get us entertainers, us content creators. Through the day. It's unbelievably kind. It's really much appreciated, and I'm really glad you're enjoying the content. Hopefully, Steve is also following us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartney Pod. We can have day to day updates of the McCartney Pod's exploits, polls, pictures, rants, that kind of thing. Join us at McCartney Pod on Twitter. For bonus Paul or Nothing content, check out PaulMcCartneyPod.wordpress.com for the written word. So yeah, there is a side blog, a sister blog for Paul or Nothing where you can read all sorts of extra stuff that haven't quite fit into episodes yet. Follow us on the socials as well. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast to keep up to date with the show. If you want to help out right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, maybe you could be oh so kind as to leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to this show on, whether it's thumbs up, stars, stars, out of 10 I don't know what you're listening to this on but yeah if you could give us some form of review help boost us up in the algorithms maybe even write a nice little comment it is always much appreciated and finally if you want to help out the show directly if you want to help us see the show grow if you want to help me get new equipment new product to review maybe help pay for unruly guests who won't do stuff for free then please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon, as I'm sure you know by now, is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. But it is certainly worth your while. You get two-day early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get seven-day early access to Macca in your attic. You get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed. So I do all the episodes on Zoom now. And anything that I I record immediately goes up on Zoom, sometimes weeks, sometimes months in advance. If you want to listen to mine and Ken Michaels' review of Off the Ground, you can listen to it right now if you become a Patreon patron. You also get access to unreleased bonus content. There are quite a few of them now that will never see the light of day, as well as scripts for the show and whatever bonus content I can think of on the day. But yeah, folks, please consider joining our wonderful Patreon family, including Mr. Chris Atkinson, who has recently upped his donation. Thank you for that, Chris. Every little helps. Your support is always appreciated, and the fact that you've clearly liked paul and to not only donate in the first place but to increase your donation is quite bewildering in in how wonderfully kind it is so thank you so much for that chris and thank you to the rest of my patreon family as well including andy cochran guy jenkinson richard campbell kim christopher newman mrs p broderick harper moti reber robert Shuley, christian perry richard driver Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLeonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, and my main man, Matt Phillips, who you will see next week on my McCartney 3 summary episode. I'm sorry, it's not off the ground, folks. It's just taking so long. I've got a lot of shit going on at the moment. Please bear with me. But yeah, folks, that is everything. Let's move right on to my wonderful interview with the wonderful... But yeah, folks, that is it. That is it for the news and the plugs. And it's now time for me to move on to my wonderful conversation with the even more wonderful Janice Mitchell and her book, My Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England and Got Rock and Roll Band in Cleveland. Let's hit it right now. One, two, three, let's go. Okay, everyone, it's now time for me to bring on today's guest... And I've said of late that I've wanted to get more authors on this podcast because there is nothing more impressive to me than someone who actually has the ability to sit down and finish a book. And joining me today is a veritable hellraiser in her own right, someone whose story, as trite as the phrase may seem, literally sounds like it's a work of Hollywood fiction. Her new book, My Ticket to Ride, How I Ran Away to England, Then Got Rock and Roll Band in Cleveland, is out... Now, please make sure you go and pick up a copy, go and check it out. I cannot give it my recommendation highly enough. Everyone, please welcome to the show, Janice Mitchell. Jan, how's it going? It's going real well, real groovy today. How's it going for you? No, it's all right. It's all right. Over here in the in the UK, things are fine and dandy. I always like to start things off with the most British question ever, though. Where are you calling from and what's the weather like over there? Ohio.
1: And the weather today is very fall-like. It's nice and cool, but
0: calm. I am very jealous of that. And <laughs> you know what? Let, let's not do any niceties. I've got so many questions to ask. We have so little time. Let's crack on. I highly doubt, Jan, that this is the first time you've ever told this story to anyone. But I have to ask, why did you decide that now was the time to put this book together and release your story?
1: Well, yes. The reason why is because I could not really tell my story at the beginning when it all happened in 1964. Uh, I was basically, you know, advised to just put it all behind me and to move forward and forget about it. So I complied. (laughs) Put it it behind (laughs) you. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, apparently I had really disappointed so many people in Cleveland. Uh, relatives, school, the juvenile court system, my church, and also the things that had led to the subtitle of my book: "Getting Rock and Roll Banned in Cleveland."
0: Uh, so, <laughs> that's quite an achievement. That's quite an achievement. I don't think I will ever I be know. able to get rock and roll banned in Birmingham here in the UK. <laughs> Who
1: can do that? You know, but I did. So I felt quite badly about it. And I just moved forward with my life. Things really picked up speed. And I just relived it in my own mind and heart because I loved what I did. It was the best adventure I ever had in my life. No one could take that away from me. But in 2016, I was listening to the radio. And who do I hear but Paul McCartney singing. He was getting ready to uh, do his one-on-one concert here in Cleveland again. Uh, and I, and suddenly, his singing struck me in the same way as the very first time I heard, I Want to Hold Your Hand, in December of 1963, where it totally energized me and just changed me forever. So when I heard Paul singing on the radio again, I had the same experience. And suddenly, I was struck that, wait a minute, everybody from back then has no power over me anymore. and They're all gone. And I don't have to worry about disappointing people. And I really want to talk about my story because I love living the adventure, but I, I'd like to share it with other people too. So that was the beginning, you know, of when I thought I want to start talking about it. And then a friend of mine who actually lives in the same condo that I do, I said, he was kind of into the promotion arena. And I said, hey, let, let me just run this by you. And he said, "Well, let's sit down and have glasses of wine and
0: talk about it." And he said, "This is literally the greatest story I ever heard in my life." I totally agree with that. I totally get that. I was reading it and I was like, "Oh no, this is surely a spec script for a for a film." Like this, it's so filmic. And I mean, this is actually the last question on my list, but I have I have to ask it now: Are there any plans to maybe adapt this into something a little more substantial, get it out there to the masses? Because I really feel you know, you get, you get two young, up-and-coming up and actresses, a pretty good director, and a half-decent script based on your book. This would make a fantastic film. It really would.
1: Well, it kind of strikes me the same way. I think it's very cinematic, and it's quite an adventure. It's action-packed with lots of drama and uh, kids doing things they shouldn't be doing but getting away with it type of thing and having the best time of their life. You know, I kind of I see it that way in my mind, but you know, there's no real plan for how to make any of that happen because the book just really got released on September 15th, but it seems to be picking up good speed right now. I mean, here I am talking to you, you know, across the pond, living in my favorite place where I wanted to live forever. So that's pretty good so far, I think.
0: And how long has it taken you to write? Then did did it it start in 2016 up until now?
1: Yes, uh-huh. I started in 2016, and I just uh, didn't even, I never wrote a book before, mm-hmm. although I had written other things, mm-hmm. and um, some people that I knew that knew about writing books, I said, how do you do it? And they said, well, you begin at the beginning, you keep on moving through the entire story until you get to the end. And I said, well, thanks a lot, <laughs> but that's what I wound up doing, and I could finish the book. Oh, my gosh, I
0: learned a lot about writing a book. Oh, it looks like a nightmare, Jan. Like, I've wanted to do a book on the songs of Tom Waits because I did a podcast on Tom Waits as well. And all it would require for me to do would be to write an intro, an outro, a paragraph on each album and a paragraph on each song. (laughs) And and then when you think about it, it's like, that's thousands and thousands. And then, like, you know, Uh, do you write in chunks or did you write most of it in one crazy three-day session you know
1: no well you know the thing is that when I I lived in New York for most of my adult life Mm -hmm. but after 9-11 I was really affected by that Mm -hmm. I'm a 9-11 World Trade Center survivor Mm -hmm. because I worked down there and after that for a few years I just couldn't get over it Mm -hmm. so I decided I would come back to Cleveland where there was absolutely nothing happening and I'd pull my act together my original plan was to—I was going to go to law school, get a degree, go back to New York, become mm-hmm. a lawyer there. But I'll tell you, God had a totally different plan for me. Right? He wasn't letting me go back. He had things for me to do here, and um, and I'm and I'm here, and I'm facing the ghosts of my past. Basically, Cleveland was not a fun place for me to want to return to at all, mm-hmm. and I had to keep thinking about what I had actually done to my relatives, my great aunt in particular, and how I had disappointed people, and how, as far as I knew, all of Cleveland looked down on me, you know, for what I had done. School, you know, church, relatives, and I had to face all those things. Oh, but that's that, that's so very- Catholic,
0: though. That's so Catholic. Any other story, it would be, I went to London and I didn't care. I didn't care what they thought. But I did find it quite quite refreshing that in your book you are like, no, no, I didn't actually want to hurt anyone. And I do feel bad that things didn't go smoothly back back over there. But the important thing is, is that it was worth it. It was 100%. It worth. was. And real,
1: facing all that stuff as I was writing, that was – the hardest part for me when I first got, got started because I kept thinking about all the things, you know, that had happened and that I had done, you know, to other people mm-hmm. and um, how I was coming back to kind of an unfriendly territory. But I was coming back and I was taking a seat. So I had to tell the story. So, this man in Canada. Uh, his name is Peter Miniachi He's, I acknowledge him in the book. Mm-hmm. He was a friend of a friend who lived in the building where I. Lived, who, when I first decided I was going to tell the story, you know, I was going to talk about it. So we sat down and I told the story, and he said, "Well, get started." And I said, "I'm what?" He said, "Well, you're writing a book, obviously." And I said, "I am." He said, "Yes. <laughs> Come on, you've got the greatest story I ever heard. Get going." So I said okay well that sounds like a good idea <laughs> I guess I will and I, I had no idea what it would and what it would take probably for anybody who wants to write a book but especially like a memoir type book with a lot of painful stuff in it so I had to live through slog through every single thing you know and I but I would keep going and I did belong to a writer's group and I I held up the newspaper story from 2016 where I was interviewed. Um, When Paul McCartney was coming here, the the pop writer got in touch with me and said, well, McCartney doesn't do one-on-one interviews anymore, so you're the next best thing. So I'm going to interview you. So it was in the newspaper, in the Sunday paper, right along the announcement about the concert. So I went to my writers' group and I pulled up the newspaper and I said, I'm making a promise to everybody here that I am going to write a book about it and I will finish it. So I made a promise and I had to stick with it because I don't make empty promises. So it a lot with me. And I started writing and then you get so far when you're writing and you think, well, where am I going with this? You know, the middle is really hard.
0: You know oh, how it begins. Yeah yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 You know how it ends and then everything else. You know, you start at the beginning, tell your story and then you finish it. There you go. We have a book. So as I'm slogging through the middle, uh, this woman I know who wrote a book, she said, oh, this is a really good story. Let me recommend this editor to you. I said, okay. You know, I never had an editor before. So I contacted her. and She said, well, what's your deadline on your manuscript? So I said, hmm, May 1st sounds good. She said, okay, that's perfect for me. Then I hang up the phone and I think, what have I done? I'm not even... (laughs) close to that but i said may 1st so i just like through the night you know night day everything it was i didn't even know what time it was anymore i just kept going and going and going until i finally get to the end and i said well i've done that part so far that's the hardest part but the really hardest part is in the edit that's where the real work begins after you finish you know your manuscript so um So that's kind of what it was like. And then I said, well, I'm not really totally happy with that editor. So I had two more editors that helped me because you got to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And each one helped me, but it wasn't until the miracle occurred where I got a a publisher. So that's, that really was uh, the thing that, that pushed. Gray Gray and
0: company, David Gray. Excellent. Oh, wow. (laughs) No, uh, oh i need i need to start my book i need i need to do it oh it'd be it'd, it would just be nice to have a little my name across something like that you know i know well you, you have to begin that's all just start writing that's the best advice i've had all day jen thank you
1: <laughs> begin at the beginning and keep telling your story until you get to the end and there you are <laughs>
0: No, but for a book with such microscopic detail, like you constantly refer to the songs you were listening to, the smells, the food, those purple drapes in your first uh, apartment in London (sighs) to keep making an, an appearance, like there's so many of them that are in my mind now. But did you have to pass the story down to make it a more palatable narrative or were you able to include everything you wanted to cover?
1: Well, I think I included everything, you know, that I could recall. And I did have some newspaper clippings from back then, from 1964. Um, I mean, it was really international news at the time. And um, so there was a lot of, a lot of coverage. So I was able to go back and read some things and say, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, and I can't forget that. So I even though I remembered so much of it, you know, I was happy to be able to refresh my
0: mind with the newspaper stories. No, I'm glad you brought up those newspaper clippings, because they were quite an interesting part of the narrative, because the whole book is directly your point of view. It's a very first person narrative. Was there any temptation, though, to say, do a chapter based on Toots' perspective once you'd left? or something about, like, the police chief in Cleveland trying to put the case together. Was there any temptation to diverge from your sole narrative there?
1: Well, I think that I touched on what I wanted to touch on to tell my story. Mm-hmm. And although there are other stories that I could have added, mm-hmm. I wanted to keep the flow, you know, moving along, although I could have told many more things.
0: But I decided to, you know, narrow it down well if we know anything about Beatle books is that they are always ripe for new editions and rewrites and you know if there's anything else in the future once this book becomes the success that i know it is maybe we'll get to hear a little bit more the moment I've, i saw the uh, the the uh, clippings of the of uh, the newspaper and i just thought that was such an interesting narr- like narrative device like it built yeah. it built up this tension throughout the book It was like oh there's some murmurings across the pond in Cleveland going on over here. And then you, and then you cut off. You don't go into any more detail back to your story. And then it's like, Oh, few chapters more. They're really getting worried in Cleveland now. <laughs> and then, and then the chapter, I did skip ahead a little bit. The chapter where it all comes, come, comes to a head and you, and you come face, face, face to face with the law. It just brought back every time I've ever been in trouble as a kid. And I felt like a naughty little boy reading it. It was, again, my heart was just coming out of my chest.
1: Well, they were just so unbelievably off to me here in Cleveland. I couldn't believe it. I kept thinking, what have I done wrong? I haven't done anything wrong. I mean, the uh, U.S. Embassy Legal Counsel, Lillienfeld, he said so himself, we've done nothing wrong. So I just kept that to myself and I, what a difference between police in London, you know, the authorities in London and here in Cleveland, but basically my, my, uh, my look back now is the police chief in Cleveland Heights. He was so annoyed by all the time it had taken, you know, to invest in, you know, supposedly caring about us, you know, and being concerned and, having to contact the
0: State Department and getting Scotland Yard involved. Oh, and no, he had to thing? make phone calls. Oh, my gosh, what a waste of police. ghetto! What what an idiot. He needs to get over, well, if he's still alive, he needs to get over himself. I mean, I can't imagine hundreds of thousands of tax dollars were, were, were wasted here. It might, it might have been a few collect calls to London and that was about yeah. it, I, I imagine.
1: Oh, well, then they had to get our photographs over, you know, to England, to the police, to Scotland Yard. So that also, you know, plus, I mean, now he's getting himself in the news. and His big comment was after we were back home was, well, now we can get some work done around here. I thought that's all you have to say, you know, oh, my goodness. But it was just strictly they had to make a statement. And of course, the judge, he just had to assemble, you know, the press so he could talk about, you know the evils of rock and roll music, and that he had taken his daughter to that Beatles concert, and how he couldn't believe what happened. So this was really his moment in the sun, you know, to talk about this, and uh, how every parent, you know, should hang their head in shame that they let their child go unaccompanied, you know, and and then um, and then of course the mayor has to go right along with him the next morning how this music, you know, this doesn't hurt the community in any regard, and Beatlemania is banned, and rock and roll is banned. And this really hurt the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. because the next day after we were in court, they were to appear in public hall the same oh. as the Beatles. <laughs> sorry, Bill, sorry! <laughs> and all these parents had read this stuff, you know, the consequences and how it affected children like drugs. Mm-hmm and would cause riots. Public Hall had 10,000 seats and it was all sold out for the Rolling Stones concert for the next day, but only 4,000 seats were filled. So the Stones were furious. I read in the paper and uh, their manager demanded an apology from the judge and the mayor of Cleveland. Excellent, you, excellent. Imagine they weren't going to get that. Oh, that's so well, funny. The, uh, the city of Cleveland only had one more contract, for, and that was for the Dave Clark Five. Now, honestly, I searched for that, and I don't even think Dave Clark Five even bothered to show up at Cleveland after all that, you know.
0: Now, have you ever received money for the for the script to footloose because this sounds like the script to footloose as well the rock, the town banning rock and roll and stuff <laughs> i'm like you need to get you need to get your fair cut of that i think uh, i'll 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 start a petition for it for you there
1: well you know i think in my mind i think that the story is just so amazingly cinematic you know i can't imagine it not winding up in a film you know i really can't And it's not because I believe, you know, oh, I should make a film or anything like that. I just think that as I look at the overall story, I think, wow, you know.
0: It doesn't need to be in the 60s. It doesn't need to be the Beatles specifically. Just the narrative of two girls taking life into their own hands and going for it. That's that's the story. The fact that it's the Beatles and London and Cleveland, that's all ephemera. That's all just icing on the cake. But, well and the other
1: thing I thought about lately is what if it had been two boys?
0: Oh my what, God.
1: No it one would not have been anything no. at all. Nothing. I mean, there would have been any bit there wouldn't have been any big publicity, you know, the Beatles would not have been involved, you know, the Rolling Stones would not have been searching for us. It wouldn't have been anything like that. So this was also a thing about girls taking power into their own hands. And society is saying, oh, we can't have that. Oh, no. You know, as soon as they get back here, boom, they're going into juvie. We're going to have to teach these girls a lesson, you know. I really think that that was a big part of it as I look back, you know.
0: No, that so, is that is so astute, the, 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 the idea that you've got these free-minded, free-thinking girls that didn't even consider taking a chaperone with them, you know, and uh, being exposed to ideas that – the the authorities at the time might not have wanted them to be exposed to. You you were a real pioneer in that sense. You may not have considered yourself that way, but I'd consider you a feminist pioneer in that sense. It's a really good, it's a really good narrative. uh, And I think any young girl reading this would greatly benefit from it. I really would. Mm,
1: Yes. Well, you know, it was an age of innocence and we bust right out of that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh. oh, no. Oh, no. I mean, like, if, if if you'd have gone 10, like, you know, 10 years later, like London would have been a different city. It, it, it would wouldn't have
1: been. It, No, this story is specific to that particular time period. It was specific to 1964, basically, because, you know, soon after that, of course, Soho in London was, was far ahead of the United States mm-hmm. as far as music, fashion, culture, you know, what was accepted. Mm-hmm. Things were much more easily accepted and embraced and enjoyed over there rather than over here where basically it was more a police state, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't imagine many, many uh, people in flower power T-shirts or gay bars in Cleveland at, at the time, you know. I, I really... No,
1: not until <laughs> several years later, you know, like not till after, um, you know, like everything started busting loose in, in California, you know, and then the, yeah. that was another unstoppable Era, but we weren't a part of that. That's what kind of makes the story so unique. We were much before any of that stuff happened. So, yeah, uh,
0: and like not every American story takes place either in Chicago, New York, or California.
1: I um, know. Yeah, I know. It was just just so amazing. I'm just happy that everything came together. You know that I could finally tell my story.
0: What What really st- stood out to me though was just how compelling the story is in the sense of it was entirely analog. It's a very pre 9-11 story. Let's just say that. And the idea that it saved two girls when AWOL today, there would be CCTV footage. There would be the log of them getting in the taxi. Your phone would be tracked. The police probably would have gotten to you before you'd even boarded your plane. So I guess what I'm saying the the appeal is is that it literally does feel like from another time, especially for someone like me. I'm 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 nearly thirty now. It just feels magic. The idea that you could just walk up, uh, you could take your money out of the bank, go to an airport, and ask for a ticket. They give you the ticket, and you go. It seems really unfathomable. <laughs> it's a a wonderful story. I mean, do you do you still believe it happened today? Are you are you still as in awe of it now as say I am? It could never happen
1: today. Never. I mean, we wouldn't have been. I mean, we would have been able to get our passports because that's legal, you know, to mm-hmm. get a passport from age 12 on. And we, we would have been OK getting to England because unaccompanied minors, as long as you have enough money, are legally permitted. But everything in the middle would not be able to happen today <laughs> because back then there were no computers. There was no Internet, no Google No iPhones. I know people today cannot imagine what life possibly could have been like. How could we have existed with all those things? But when I look back and I realize that it was still an an age where there was so much more freedom and so much more innocence and so much less dangerous that you could follow dreams should you be able to figure out how to do that,
0: which I did. Innocence is a very good word for it, actually. Like, for example, you talk about a dream you had when you were in your flat in London and you're just dreaming of singing A Hard Day's Night with the Fab Four on a plane somewhere. Now, I feel like if I was to write that and I was having a dream about, say, a female artist that I was attracted to, then it would probably be a little more of a sordid dream. And that does kind of bring me on to... A point that i found very fascinating and it's something we talk about on the show a lot here and it's the comparison between male beetle fans and female beetle fans and your book has come out in a golden age really of a time when you know the the narrative of the Beatles story isn't just being told by people who look like me it's being told by a wide variety of people now and i guess i wanted to ask you do you recall young male Beatle fans at the time back in 1964 were there a lot of young men at the Cleveland Public Hall for example
1: I think that there were some there I'm sure Mm -hmm. but I wasn't really paying attention to them (laughs) and I didn't know any because I went to a Catholic girls school at the time so we didn't really have much to do with boys plus I was always more interested in the music and um, even when we had uh, like team dances, mixers, where they wanted Catholic girls and Catholic boys to meet up, you know, and hopefully get married down the road, I was more interested in the music.
0: I like that. Like you know, some guys like, "Can we dance?" I'm like, "Excuse me, I'm listening to it. Won't be long, thank you." Uh, let me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, um, I feel like your your narrative was such a, an, an interesting insight into one particular fan's experience rather than say the whole fandom as a whole and there's a certain conversation between like the right sort of Beatle fans and what I did enjoy about your book was you know there's a stereotype that oh the female fans they they just thought Paul was cute and Ringo was handsome but you but you pretty much you quote almost the entire Beatles discography at the time you know all the lyrics you know all the songs and I think it actually defied a lot of expectations in in that sense. I mean, you've just said yourself now, you were more involved in the music. And did you ever feel at the time that there was a, a hierarchy of fans? You know, because as the narrative has gone on, it's it became, you know, rock journalists and rock critics writing for Q and stuff like that. Do you ever feel like that there was a sense that there was a wrong type of fan at one point?
1: Well... Only when I went to see the Beatles in concert on September 15th, 1964 in the public auditorium, mm-hmm. where it was one of the most, um, I guess, very disappointing to see all those girls suddenly in the middle of the third song of the Beatles. I saw her standing there. They all started brushing like they were leaving the building because it was on fire. And towards the stage, basically, in my opinion, Ruining the Beatles concert, the thing we had waited so long for. I I was not a happy person. I'm sitting in my front row center seat. The Beatles, the stage is 10 feet away approximately from where I was sitting. And now suddenly, everything was out of control. Yeah, I was disappointed in those. Keep it down. Keep it down. (laughs) I stayed in my seat. Being raised a good Catholic girl, you know, who didn't do anything. I didn't never yelled or screamed or anything like that. I stayed in my seat. And uh, those were the fans that I truly was disappointed in.
0: I guess you would have felt more kinship with the original Cavern Club Beatle fans um, who also kind of resented the subsequent screaming Beatle mania.
1: Yeah, I think so. I would have been perfect and perfectly happy to go to the Cavern Club. Every every day, you know, to see the Beatles, and uh, I would have loved that. Yeah, I yeah, that would have been perfect for me.
0: Now, I was raised Catholic as well, and I think that's one of the main reasons I was so attracted to the first part of your book. Because normally, the the setup to a lot of these Beatles books, I skip through. We're like, let's let's get to the bit with the Beatles, you know. Whereas with yours, I was so captivated by the familial and family oriented backstory. And did, um, how important was it for you to fully detail the, the, the pre-Beatlemania life story?
1: Well, I felt it was very important because I didn't want people to think, oh, she's just this groupie. I thought it was important to kind of set some information about who I actually was and how I became that girl who did this incredible thing. Mm-hmm. So... Um, my uh, my family background and also Catholicism. I mean, those were two very important parts
0: of who I was and who I am. So I wanted to tell that. No, um, I really enjoyed that 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 first part of the book and the way you described some of your family members was really quite. Uh, it brought a certain tear to my eye at certain points. There was the, there was a lot a lot of love there, and. Uh, you know what, let's just quickly show people the book here, folks. Uh, um, something I took a little bit of umbrage with, though, is a description on the back of the book uh, calling the home you grew up in as grim. And I didn't really get that sense from the book. There was there was certain restrictions there and certain uh, an authoritarianism, but would it be wrong of me to claim that there was clearly still a lot of love and affection in that house, even if it wasn't or couldn't have been shown at the time?
1: Well, I agree with you that grim was not the best choice of words to describe how I lived. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, the first seven years of my life, I w- wouldn't even call that grim. I would call it horrifying and uh, terrible for a child. But when I started living with my great-aunt Toots and my, uncle, my great-uncle Mac, the, the next seven years were quite happy, really, mm-hmm. pretty carefree. I had everything I needed. And I didn't have to worry about anything. And basically, my great uncle Mac, he was the one who provided the, you know, the extra love ingredient that I never had before. That was the wonderful thing about him and why I felt so close and connected with him.
0: I I don't think I'll be stepping out of line by saying there was a certain parallel between you and John Lennon in that sense, because... You had John moving in with his aunt Mimi and her husband. I think I think I, I think it's George. I, I forget. Um, but then he sadly passed away earlier. And then John was left with the with the stricter female parent. And I thought there were some very interesting parallels there. You know, these uh, Yes. it's a very small world, you know. <laughs> yes. As someone who was raised Catholic as well, I do need just to take a quick sidestep. Was the singing nun really that big of a deal for all of the nuns at your Catholic school then?
1: Well, they were very impressed.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can imagine that at my school, Canon Hanlon or Father Michael would have gone absolutely nuts if there was a Catholic song at, at the uh, number at the number one. Um, obviously, JF- JFK was in were, was in the White House as well around that time. It was never never a better time to be a Catholic, eh? Yes, exactly. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's stay. Uh, stay staying bid that line, though. Um, of course, the Beatles now seem to be these titanic figures that rocked both the political establishment as well as the religious one. And I don't think you would have run off to England for any other band. You know, I don't think you, you would have run off to join Jerry and the Pacemakers or anything like that. So, do you ever do you ever consciously feel that? The Beatles were changing your perceptions and introducing you to new ideas, or was it a bit more subtle and subversive, and you didn't realize until later on that they had changed you?
1: I knew instantly the first time, the first chord of "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Oh. I was a different person. Truly, really, I was transformed from that moment, and um, I couldn't hear enough of that song. I was listening to the transistor radio in my kitchen, doing my homework. On December 26, 1963. And the music at that time, you know, it was all we had. And mm-hmm. you could dance to it, of course. And music was so important to teenagers, especially. Well, I shouldn't say that. Music was important to everybody. Like, even my mm-hmm. great aunt, she loved the Lawrence Walk Show. Okay. Yes. So she yeah. couldn't, she never missed that. But the radio is something that was a constant, you know, for kids. So, um... When I heard that a new disc jockey was coming from Chicago to Cleveland, and in those days, the disc jockeys, they could play whatever records they wanted to. Yeah. And it was their choice. And also, you could call the radio station while they were on the air, and you could talk to them during the commercial break or while they were playing a record and ask them to play a song for you if you wanted to make a request. So, um, when I first heard, I want to hold your hand, it was the very first Beatles song that hit the air on the radio in Cleveland. I just picked up that transistor radio, put it right next to my ear to hear every single thing that I could. It was amazing. It was like life. And then I jump up and I reach for the receiver on the yellow phone attached to the wall and rotary dial the, uh, the district, studio station. And, It was just a busy signal, and I tried so many times, and I'm thinking, well, every kid in Cleveland is calling because they want Jerry D to play this song again. So that was actually, that was the defining moment for me being completely transformed. That's all it took was one song by the Beatles, that song, the perfect song.
0: Was there any comment from uh, the nuns or or the priests as as to how you should be perceiving these Beatles? Was it definitely do not listen to these devils or you know?
1: You know, actually, no. I mean, the nuns actually seemed to enjoy what was going okay. on. Okay. And as a matter of fact, when I was doing some research for the book, I went back to the nun college archives to look at the yearbook from that, that time, and they had quoted some Paul McCartney songs. In the yearbook, you know, along the top, above photos and everything, so I can see that they really enjoyed. They really enjoyed the Beatles. I they might we, not have made a big deal about it. But they really did.
0: I think a lot of their earlier stuff as well, um, especially like um, if you look at George Harrison's solo work, you can pretty much associate anything he sings about. Uh, with its relationship to God but so many of those early Beatles songs you can totally just swap out the idea of them singing to a girl as to singing Mm -hmm. to God and it still has the the same power like there were bells on a hill but I never heard them ringing till there was you that you could easily say that that's a, a, a a a speech to God you know
1: oh absolutely the thing that was so wonderful about them was that they sang about love and relationships, you know, in every aspect of being in love with someone or loving someone, and maybe they're not loving you anymore. They were so they made themselves so vulnerable, you know, to the issues of the heart. Mm-hmm. They were singing about all those things and they weren't afraid. And it was so beautiful.
0: And it, and it was Innocent Love. This was the black and white pre-Revolver Beatles. You know, they hadn't uh, stepped up to that to that new kind of image. And I guess, yeah, yeah, let's go with that. Obviously, the book does end at a certain year. But did your fandom for the Beatles continue? Did you like it when they went into Technicolor and they start singing about politics and drugs and social issues and all of that? Did you like Hairy Beatles, shall we say? <laughs> well, you
1: know, I, my favorite Beatle was George. So he was the quiet one, mm-hmm. you know, still waters run deep. And then he became the spiritual beetle. You know, that's really the, the Beatleness that I always enjoyed. Although there is no beetle song that I really never liked. But mm-hmm. my foundation was pre-technical additions to their music. Mm-hmm. Like the album that came out, Meet the Beatles, Beatle album, you know, where I want to hold your hand was the very first track on the first side. But I, then later on, I got um, introducing the Beatles, you know, on the B.J. label, that had still, you know, more what I would call the original simple music, you know, mm-hmm. a taste of honey, chains, and all
0: those types of songs. Pure, I love, love all those. No, I've never even considered the impact of having a wanna hold your hand being on an, the opening album track here in the UK. It was it was just a single, and then it it didn't come out till like one and Past Masters and the blue album, that 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 kind of thing. But you know, people are saying, Why did Beatlemania hit America different than England? Having a Wanna Hold Your Hand as an album opener, your book is testament to that. That what a powerful move, you know. People here in the in the UK we look down on the american releases but yeah i can't I, I can't deny the power of such a move there that's incredible moving on i do just want to give a shout out to your friend marty here martha who is just there behind behind me what a cool person what an incredibly kind friend like not only did she go out with you to england but she also put her entire college fund on the line for this like I told, I I told my mother about that. She nearly fainted. She was like, you would, you would not do that with your college fund. I, I tell you that you would have gone with the $80 in your pocket and nothing more. Could you imagine of, of doing this with any other person? Or was it always, was it always going to be you too? It was always,
1: that was it. It was us.
0: Against the world.
1: No, no one else
0: oh it's, it's it's a shame two of us uh wasn't wasn't a song that was already released by that point it definitely fits fits your narrative again there now you also mentioned that when you landed in london you were asked to check in at a local police station and that was a big red 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 flag for me that was like oh no the story's gonna end here huh. but do you think that if you had done that and you'd have done as you're told that it would have been over at that point it would have been completely over
1: I don't think so, because at that very moment, no one really knew from the United States where we were. They hadn't found us yet. Mm-hmm. But I think that when they were trying to locate us, and they discovered that the last time that anybody knew where we were was with you know when we did show our passports mm-hmm. at Customs. And I think if we had just like, you know, like, right over to the police station and said, well, here we are, you know, that would have been the last time that anyone had known where we were, but they didn't really know
0: me yet at that point. The world was so massive back then. It, it It's so incredible. The world was so massive. Do you reckon that there was a chance that you could have gone elsewhere or was it only ever going to be London-Liverpool? Like, 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 say if you found out the Beatles had a uh, an office in Manchester, would it have also been Manchester as well? Like...
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, for me... London, Soho, that was the destination. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it had to be Liverpool because that's where the Beatles were born. Mm -hmm. That's where they, you know, they formed their, their group. That's where everybody knew them from. So Soho and Liverpool were the only two destinations that I ever had at that time.
0: It's, it seems like a lot of your perceptions, at least when you were a girl, were based on media, based on TV and films, especially something like A Hard Day's Night. I couldn't imagine the impact of a film like that on a young mind. Did England live up to your expectations? Did Did, did, did you like it here?
1: I loved it there. It felt like home instantly. And I truly never wanted to leave. I never, I loved it. I loved everything about it. It was just all, it just felt like it resonated with
0: who I was, mm-hmm. who I am, really. It's the best place. You also mentioned eating at Woolworths. I must sadly report Woolworths has now closed down, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. But that made me uh, very, very nostalgic as well. But on the flip side, both peanut butter and fries have taken off here since. So, you know, you win, <laughs> you, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> you know what? One, one other quick Catholic question, because this is something I always like to ask. Uh, how did you feel about the whole bigger than Jesus fracas? That that whole incident.
1: Well, honestly, you know that's John Lennon. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: what else can I
0: say? <laughs> that is John, all right. Whether he was qu- quoted correctly or misquoted, whatever happened happened. Um, yeah. We should also move on to the stones and I'm not going to spoil this part. I'm not going to go into detail here and I don't think you should either because it was a real twist in the book that I never saw coming. It was a fantastic moment. I thought you were so brave and the sheer gall you had to turn back around and re-enter that venue from a different door. Again, it was like a scene from a movie. You, you can imagine the voiceover narration, I I took a step across the precipice and the door opens and you're in a new magical world. Mm-hmm. And um, there's 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 a part where Mick Jagger comes in and he's like, you know, I'm just I'm very undersexed, you know. And he's walking around and he's all he's all doing the Mick, and that was very funny. I loved all the detail there. But then there was a little lump in my in my throat. I was like, oh no, where's this innocent girl? Is with all five stones? What what is going to happen here? And what happens, no spoilers, is far more sweet and kind and wholesome a portrayal of the stones than I think many people would expect. And I know this was before the era of harder drugs and the stones having new, you know, losing members, getting new members. But do you feel like the stones are actually a lot nicer, kinder, and sweeter than even they would allow the media to portray?
1: Well, I believe that that is true because I had a beautiful little bit of time there with them. I thought they were very nice to me,
0: all of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I won't spoil the book, but is Bill Wyman still your favourite member of the Stones? Well,
1: he has to be.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Go and get the book, folks. I cannot uh, I cannot em- emphasize that enough. Um, scroll through. Now... I don't want to spoil the party here, a little bad bad joke there, but um, how, how did it feel when you got back to the States and you had amassed a small army of fans in your own right? How did that feel?
1: Well, uh, we already had quite an army of fans, which we learned about when we were still you know, there in London. Totally shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course we had different kinds of fans, when we finally got back to Cleveland, it was a completely different upside down experience. I I guess I don't want to say too much about it, but it was
0: pretty terrifying. Yeah. No. And, and, uh, and
1: totally unfair.
0: Yeah. I think unfair would be a, the right way to put, to put a lot of it. It, it, it does boggle my, my, my mind that people would be upset that you did what you did. Like, me reading it now, I'm just like, oh, these are the two coolest girls ever. They they took life by the reins and they did what they wanted to. I, I can't see anyone perceiving it to be anything else. I don't think you 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 did anything too upsetting, you know. Maybe you could have left a note, maybe, but then that would have given it away and they would have come for you. Like, I totally get that. And um, the preparation for your leaving of Cleveland as well it's it. It was as tense as like The Godfather. Like the bit when you're approaching uh, your friend's house, you're like, "Oh God, is the car gonna be there? Have they gone to work? Are they? Are have they not gone to work? Is one of them ill today?" And I was like, "Oh, it's it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna my, my heart was beating in my chest. The book, the book was that. <laughs> it it really was. Um, You also uh, talk about your excessive luggage, and I have these images of you dragging huge suitcases and trunks all around London. Was there anything that you wish you had packed but didn't?
1: Uh, No, I think we brought pretty much everything that we had, because, well, for myself, I was planning on staying there forever. That was my plan. So I brought all all, everything that I had. Winter clothes, everything.
0: (laughs) Now... This 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 brings me on to something that I've, I've, is one of my favourite what if questions of this. Do you think that if this had been the story of say a twenty one year old or a thirty year old, that the lack of childlike innocence would have prevented you from going? Like if it was me now, I'd be like, oh well, I need this, I'd need that. This had happened, I couldn't, you know, I I wouldn't be able to get a job, I wouldn't be able to get a house. Do you think naivety was your greatest ally? in this, I guess, would be the nicest way to put it.
1: Absolutely. Although I was able to plan everything totally up to arriving, mm-hmm. I had no plan beyond that because I couldn't have a plan. And I just
0: believed and was positive that everything would work out. I love I love that one line where it's like, well, I can type and do filing. I can work for Brian Epstein. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I can't do that now. <laughs> so. <laughs> Damn, I've, I've been out-qualified by a 16-year-old girl here. no, I can't. She's gonna get the job with Brian before me now. I was I was <laughs> I was very annoyed at that indeed. Oh. oh honestly, though, I'm I'm a little bit hamstrung here because to go into much more detail would be to spoil so many elements of this book that I really have been in, been, been enjoying. And I had a guy on the show recently who does the Beatles Books podcast. You may you may have spoken with him, Joe and I I, as I told him I really can't sit down and read I really struggle my mind's you know worrying about all the time to just to sit down with the book is a real challenge for me but this book here my ticket to ride I actually sat down with it I was actually enthralled by it and I got through up until the Beatlemania segment in about an hour I just blasted right through it and I really don't (laughs) want to uh spoil too much more of it but yeah, that's pretty much everything I wanted to ask you about it, really, without 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 spoiling the book. I really don't want to reveal all of these juicy details. Let me just say though, it's a very well put-together book for a for a for a for a first release. I love all the clippings, I love all the sources, the photo, fo- the photographs in it. Not too many photographs, which is always good. Every time someone releases the first book, there's like eight lines in it, and it's just hundreds and hundreds of photographs. <laughs> Folks. Please, if my opinion means anything to any of you out there, which I'm sure it does and doesn't to different degrees, go and check it out. I mean, you could also start a podcast like me and get a free copy to send it uh, sent to you. But if not, please go out and buy it because it really is something worth reading. So like like say, it, it was been released on September 15th and I'm guessing it's available in all good bookstores, Amazon, Internet, that kind of thing.
1: Yes, and it's even Amazon, the UK
0: Amazon, it's available on there to make it easy. Thank you very much. You <laughs> Any plans on an audiobook version? Well, uh, my
1: publisher told me that we just signed a contract for an audio version, and it's going to be, I guess, available or worked on or something like that in fall, which I'm not really sure what that means
0: as far as months go. Jan, please do the audio yourself, like your voice. I'm not going to be able to finish this book without hearing your voice now. It's it's oh. it, it's going to be in my head. And there's nothing worse than when an author doesn't do their own audio book. I think you'd have real fun doing it. It'd be a nice, fun experience for you. But I think most importantly, us, the listeners, us, the readers would definitely benefit from that. And I'd love to hear it. And I'll, you do the audio version, 100%. Yeah. I, I wish I could. I'm going to check into that a little bit more now. Thank you for saying that. Just get some honey and some vinegar and a bit of water, <laughs> shake it all up, drink it, and you'll have the smooth, dulcet tones of, of, of the American radio. Welcome to KBBL. You know, some... come <laughs> <laughs> to you on the West Coast. You know, something like... But, um. yeah. Um... Thank you so much for this, John. This has actually turned out far better than I ever really planned, really. Uh, I'm always nervous oh. when, when I uh, speak speak with authors, but you've been a joy. You've been a real joy.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. And you're a, really a great interviewer. One of the best. Oh,
0: uh, <laughs> you flirt. You hopeless flirt. Thank you so I much. I know. It's because <laughs> I'm
1: hoping you're going to help me get a film deal.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Seriously, like talk to your editor talk to your publisher someone will buy this i'd like i'd like it to be a british made film over here I'd i be- want too. yeah
1: as a matter of fact let me just add this in
0: 2018
1: i dragged my brother along with me to come over to england and liverpool you know to kind of re revisit some of the places and the very first night in liverpool we stayed at this hotel we got there quite late my brother went up to his room, and I said, well, I'm going downstairs. I'm in Liverpool. I'm out of-
0: <laughs> <laughs> In a bit? Yeah, I'm off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I go down, and, you know, the uh, the check-in thing and Little Counter where you could get some pints and snacks was there, and there were two men sitting there. So I'm standing next to one of the men. He looks very 70s, psychedelic T-shirt, all long, frizzy hair, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, only in Liverpool, right? And then two seats down with his other – a handsome man, you know, and the two of them were talking. So I'm standing next to the, the 70s looking guy and he turns and he looks at me and he says well, hello, can I buy you a pint? And as soon as he said that I said, I'm never leaving Liverpool you know, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm mean, sitting sit, sit next to us so I'm sitting between the two of them the younger one, he was a musician in a band mm-hmm. and the, the, the 70s looking guy he said that I said, they're asking me why I'm there, and I'm telling them about my story, right? So the young one says, can you please write down all your information here? He said, I know somebody on BBC Merseyside Radio, I think it is. Mm-hmm. He said, he'd love to interview you. I said, sure. So the other man, it turned out, he was there. He was the, providing the guitar technical services for the movie.
0: Uh, the Danny
1: Boyle movie yesterday yesterday. oh my god oh my god (laughs) you believe that here I am I just landed isn't Liverpool like the most
0: perfect place for me so um you've got a superpower you you must have some that you don't know you have but you have the ability to find the right people at the right time (laughs) oh my gosh that's incredible
1: so anyway, he said, well, let me take a picture on my phone of your information, right? So anyway, uh, the other guy's name was Roy Kirkhill. The, um, the yesterday movie guy, he said his name was Beat. I said, oh, B-E-A-T? He says, no, B-E-E-T. And he wouldn't tell me anymore. So when the movie finally came out, I went to see it in the movie in the theater, and I'm looking at all the credits for Beat, 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 Beat and there he is. His name is... Uh, beat um beat mall troy and i said wow what a name is that well apparently he has a studio in in manchester i looked it up anyway they wanted me to keep in touch you know about the book so i did to roy oh we tried to make connections with whoever this this jockey was but he couldn't at the time but he made a connection with a pal of his at the cavern club who emailed me and gave me and my brother two free tickets you know, to come and go to the show. And then he said, Let me know when your book is out, because we want to put that book here. So, anyway, I emailed when the book was ready, and Beat emails me back and he says, Janice, thank you so much. He said, I wanted you to know all along that when you told me your story, he said, and I went back to the studio and I tried like heck to get people interested in your story because he said, it is a film. But everybody was too busy. It is.
0: It is. It's a, oh, I can see you getting on the plane and back in the USSR, we'll start playing and the opening title <laughs> credits will rot. Well, no, the opening scene is you going to your friends, to uh, Marty's house. That is that is the opening scene. You don't let the audience know what's going on. And then, you know, you get in the cab, title sequence, we're off. You know, it was... <laughs> Although,
1: I don't know, I've often thought, well, should I send a copy of the book to Danny Boyle? I mean, how would you even get in touch with him? Because he did Yesterday, and he did Slumdog Millionaire. He kind of likes, you know, out of the box. But I don't know if that's, if I should even bother with something like that or not, but... Yeah, is like a generic
0: place. You just send, a, do you send scripts to studios, to producers? I'm not sure what the process is there, but... I don't know. Just just print off a bunch of uh, spec copies, send out a bunch of, I mean, just see how many free copies your publisher will send out to respective studios. If you can get 10 or 20 out, you'll get two replies, definitely.
1: I don't know, but I'm just kind of excited as, you know, like, where could this possibly go? And I think it could, could, I really feel in my heart it could go
0: there. Oh, I mean, even if a studio doesn't pick it up, Netflix will do it. That would be a great Netflix movie. Come on, Netflix! You know,
1: I I watched a three-part Netflix series about Silla Black, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that was so wonderful. I love her. I love Scylla.
0: Right. Uh, uh, this will be included on the Patreon, obviously. But, folks, if anyone listening to this right now knows her, uh, the Hollywood intelligentsia, do get in contact with the podcast. <laughs> uh, do do let do do let us know because. Uh, this is going to be my goal before I'm 30 to make sure that you've got a meeting with Danny Boyle or Edgar Wright or Danny Fletcher any of the great British directors going right now or maybe we'll get guy we'll, we'll, we'll get guy rich and we'll make it a really dirty movie who knows with lots of swearing and fighting and action who knows well you you're Sam
1: you're my new unofficial agent now for all things all connections. In, in England.
0: Oh well, if I'm an agent, I need to put the glasses on then. Yeah. Now 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 I'm an agent. Ten percent Jan. Ten percent. Come on. Here we go. Yes. Here we go. And the split is ten ninety.
1: Ten
0: ninety to me. My, I'm putting on my glasses. Here we go. No, um, uh, I'm I'm more of a an, an Alan Klein guy, you know. Uh, I take I take all the money, but I'll look after you, you know, I look after you. Jan, thank you so much for speaking with 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 me today. I'm I, I'm a little starstruck that I'm that that I'm speaking with you now because I've had so much fun enjoying this book. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. No, no, no. Thank you. Thank you for giving me an hour of resting my mind, just simply enjoying and reading a book. It's been a real lot. It's been fun reading it. And it's been even more fun talking to you.
1: Well, thank you for having me on your very this podcast. I love it. Beautiful. Thank you so much
0: been wonderful oh you, you're melting my heart you stop it stop it stop it Right, oh, folks yeah. <laughs> thank you everyone for joining me on another quick episode of paul or nothing where i've been talking to the indomitable Jan Mitchell, who is who has already agreed to do the uh, audio version. She said here on the show, folks, she she can't take it back now. She has to do it. Uh, <laughs> everyone, this, this has been another episode of Paula Thing. I've been talking with Jan Mitchell, the author of My Ticket to Ride: How I Ran Away to England and Meet Beat the Beatles and Got Rock and Roll Band in Cleveland, a true story from 1964. Folks, go buy the bloody book. That's all I've got to say. Take care, peace and love. No more autographs.